You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 90, you'll see the heading there is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Uh, People argue about everything, so people argue about whether Moses actually wrote this. Uh, But even people who argue about it, just about everybody agrees that the scope, the breadth, the language, all of it is fitting for Moses and a man of his character. So we're going to read it like Moses wrote it. And uh, it is maybe then one of the oldest psalms in that regard. So let's begin in verse 1. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction. You say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. So... Here he opens up, the scope of this is going to be pretty huge, but he begins just by saying, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. He wants to couch the rest of what he's saying in the idea that God, from the beginning, from Adam, from the fall, all the way till Moses' time, what he was to all the godly through that area, he still is today. That he is our dwelling place, he's where we find refuge, he is our help. We live and move and have our being in him. The psalmist would say in Psalm 71, Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. God is rightly our home. Uh, A home, if it's what it's supposed to be, is where you want to return, where you want to abide, where you find peace, rest, love. Uh, God for the godly has always been those things throughout all generations. And he covers that there through, wants that to be the context as we look through the rest of this. Then he begins to think and work out kind of God's plan through the ages. A lot of people believe he was either just beginning or maybe finishing writing the first five books of the Bible. We notice here he's awed by God's contemplation or God's or contemplating God's plan through the ages. He's thinking of God pre-creation. You are God from everlasting to everlasting, from infinity past to the infinite future. He thinks of God in creation before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. He thinks of God even in the fall and the curse. You turn man to destruction. You say, return, O children of men. Even thinking of that pre-flood lifespan, the Adamic kind of line for a while where it says for a thousand years or as uh, something quickly passing in your night, like a watch in the night. He's thinking of this time and God's work and God's presence through the whole thing. And he's also thinking of how quickly it went. Even that thousand-year period can seem like this once you come to the end of it. 
Jacob, we're told, when he came before Pharaoh, said this, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. How short they seem when we come to the end of them. I'm sure many of us have heard or said or understand. Uh, the older we get, you hear the phrase more, I don't know where the time went or how the time flies, or how quickly things pass. There's, there's a sense of, even if you go back to the longest humans have ever lived, Methuselah, when, it, when you come to the end of it, how fast that time seemed, how fast it moved, how fast those things passed. He continues that picture in verse 5, where he gives us three kind of images of the passing of life, that passing of time. He says, you carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. And in the evening, it is cut down and withers. Three pictures there, like debris in a flood. The idea is it's pushing forward totally out of our control or outside of our power. Uh, recently, in years, just a few years past, we've had huge tsunamis, whether in Japan or in Thailand, that area. We've had some pretty major floods in the U.S. When you see pictures of those things, some of those documentaries or images, you see the debris carried in the flood, and it's, it's out of its control, right? The flood just moves it along. It has no ability to stop or to resist it. And he says there's a, there's a sense where time, life, it carries us forward like that, like we're caught up in the momentum of it. He says it could be like a sleep, uh, quick passing. It's a, there's a sense of something, but then that reality is over, like a dream, in essence. When you and I dream, we have experience. Uh, we're afraid of being eaten by a monster or that we've committed some crime or somebody we love is attacking us or something, and then you wake up whether it was an experience of real anger or joy or pleasure or fear, whatever that is, there's, a, there's an experience. But then you wake up from that experience into a greater reality. And usually we're like, whew, right? Okay, this is, this is what reality is. And, and the sense there is, again, our life, as is picked up in other places in Scripture, is, is like a dream that passes. There's, there's a reality we have here. There's an experience we have here. We can collect to ourselves our anger or our joy or our pleasure or our fears. But one day, we're all going to wake up into a greater reality. It's not going to change. And atheists can do all they can to try to convince themselves otherwise, but most of the world knows when I pass out of this life, I'm going to wake up into a greater reality, and that reality isn't going to change. And he says, not only that, we're like that grass that grows to live and then perishes quickly. There's a transience there, this is the picture. There's real life. There's real beauty, particularly in this area of the world uh, where there's a lot of desert and hot areas. When a rain would come, grass, flowers could grow up extremely quickly, but then also fade very quickly. And they were familiar with this picture uh, and the scriptures continue to pick up these images. Job 9 tells us, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away and they see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an e eagle swooping on its prey. 
For when a, day, when a few days are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Psalmist again says, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. The wind passes over and is gone, and his place is remembered no more. And James would say, what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. All of these image giving us the sense of the moving, the inevitable moving of that time and the quickness of it once we come to the end there. Now, seven, he continues. He says, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath and we finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. For who knows the power of your anger, and for as the fear of you, so is your wrath. And here we have a picture of the effects of sin, sin in us, sin in the world. No doubt Moses uh, is thinking of that wilderness generation that sinned and endured their life and the passing of their time there under God's anger and un under God's wrath for their refusal to enter into the promised land. And he's also recognizing that there's no justifying of ourselves before God. Our inner sins and our outer sins are fully known to him. He says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret iniquities, unknown sins even to us. He knows, he's familiar with. The inner pollution of our hearts might be hidden from us, but it's not from him. Man, even if he isn't just sinning outwardly, the Bible teaches he is a sinner by nature. That the very central nature of our beings is broken. We are by nature, the Bible says, children of wrath. We were born in sins and iniquities. Adam sinned, and when he passed on life, the only life he had to pass on was sinful, fallible human life. We don't become sinners when we do something wrong. We do something wrong because we already are sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. And people come into this world, and their sin nature might, might reflect itself in various ways. Some people's sin nature is seen in their sexual brokenness, whether it's a gender dysphoria or a homosexuality or a heterosexual sin. Some people's sin nature is seen in thievery or their relation to alcohol or their prideful, self-righteous attitude, or their violence. All our sin nature might develop itself and make itself known in various ways. But the reality is there is an inner problem, and that inner problem manifests itself. And God is fully aware of that inner problem. Uh, one commentator translated that phrase there, our secret near the lamp of your face. And that was a great picture, almost like Indiana Jones, right? Pulling up the lamp in front of something to see, to see that. But the idea is when wherever God looks, everything is fully clear to him. The light is on it. And in our lives, that's a reality. The psalmist would say in Psalm 19, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He recognized the awareness of a deeper sinfulness in his life than he even knew. Keep me from my secret sins, presumptuous sins. 
All this leads to, notice, our years passing like a sigh. Time here is not necessarily easy. It may, in fact, be vanity. It says some may boast if they live even longer than others. Instead of 70, they live 80 years. They can boast, but what do they have to boast of? Their labor? Their time has still passed? It's still gone? And who can, he then says in 11, who can really understand the intensity of God's wrath against sin in a way that would cause us to fear God correctly? You see, the fear of God is a safeguard against offending him. And we can't even fully understand his attitude to, towards sin and those things. Now, at this point, you're like, I thought Moses was a happier dude than this. This is not that exciting. Uh, it's a reality, though. I, I think it's the basis of where we need to be. We just sang that song, Oh, Lord, you know the hearts of men, and still you let them live. That's not uh, a common worship sentence right there but it's true and Moses is picking up on this watching God's scope his action with humanity through the years so but here's where the psalm turns so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom Teach us the number of our days that we might, your Bible might say, apply a heart of wisdom. The idea in the language is there. Teach us the number of our days that we can harvest to ourselves a heart of wisdom. And the reality is we need wisdom to see life correctly. We need wisdom to have time in focus. In some ways, life does force us to number our days, but most of the time we don't. We allow them to slip. That's our problem. Uh, there are times birthdays force us to number our days. Some of us lie about that, but it's a reality. Uh, you know, graduations, high school or college, they cause us to number our days. Anniversaries cause us to number our days. Class reunion letters that show up for like, you know, 35th year. You're like, oh, man, wow. Uh, senior citizen discounts is kind of a benefit, but... Tells you something, right? There are things that happen in life that cause us to number our days, but for the most part, our danger is an unawareness, a lack of wisdom in relation to the numbering of our days. That's why Paul would, again, encourage the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. There are fewer more dangerous thoughts to the spiritual life than that we have the freedom to blow time, to waste it, to just allow it to pass. The Lord won't return or death won't cause the end of my time here. None of those things are going to happen. So the forgetfulness of the preciousness of our time leads to laziness, self-indulgence, all types of apathy, waste, immaturity. Sinful desires that we allow ourselves to play out. And that enchantment of endless time, because it is a spell the world casts on us. It's hard to break. Sometimes somebody's death might shock us out of it. Uh, but for a little while, it can work, and then we go back very often to the same things uh, or our personal wasting of time. Only the power of the kingdom of God 
can break through that spell and give us clarity. And Moses is praying, Lord, teach us to number our days so we can apply, we can gather a heart of wisdom to where we live and the time that we have. The sticky or better yet tragic thing about time is that we can't get it back. One minister said this, there is nothing moralistic or sentimental about this truth. It means for us simply that we must be careful with our lives for Christ's sake, because it would seem that they are the only lives we're going to have in this puzzling and perilous world. And they're very precious. And what we do with them matters enormously. Everybody knows that, and we need no one to tell us it. Yet, in another way, perhaps we always need to be told because there is always the temptation to believe that we have all the time in the world, whereas the truth of it is that we do not. We have only a life, and the choice of how we are going to live it must be our own choice, not one that we would let the world make for us. Because surely for each of us there comes a point of no return, a point beyond which we no longer have life enough to go back and start all over again. You see, the main rule of time is don't waste it. There are different seasons of life and different challenges and all of those things. Ecclesiastes would tell us certainly that we should remember our creator in the days of our youth before difficulty come, the years draw near when you say I have no pleasure in them. Ecclesiastes would again tell us that everything is beautiful in its time. But for a young person or an old person, that might look differently. F.W. Borm would say we're in danger of losing our good as the years go on. The years are great thieves. They creep on us with stealthy footsteps and filch away our treasure. The idea is we need wisdom because the redemption of our time looks different in different places. How a high schooler redeems their time looks different than how a college student redeems their time. Looks different than how a person who's stepping into their career redeems their time. Looks different than how a mother or a father redeems their time or a house full of a whole bunch of Screaming kids redeems their time. Or how a grandparent with a grandchild redeems their time. All of those things look different at different stages. So we need wisdom. But we have to understand we can't buy into the lie that we have all the time in the world or our whole life is in front of us or that your time is your own. This is me time. You don't own any time. You can't hold on to it. You can't create your own. It's all on loan. We have to have a heart of wisdom to see it clearly. That's why Peter encouraged us to be diligent to add to our faith. Love, joy, knowledge, desire, faith, compassion, humility. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't be fools, but be wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Moses would say this then in 13, Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. He then continues to pray, I think it's important for God's compassion on this. Right? Does this idea frighten you? If you begin to see time in focus, does it scare you? Well, if it frightens you because you love the world too much, well and good. The shoe fits, wear it. John would tell us, the world is passing away and the less of it. And he who does the will of God abides forever. 
if this idea frightens us because we realize our weakness and our insufficiency to look at our time with the correct wisdom, then we find ourselves in Moses' place, and this is a good prayer for us. And Moses prays for that wisdom, but he also calls on God for help. And we're encouraged here in 13 through 15 to call on God for help. He's near who all the call, to all that call upon him in truth. And there's great grace and mercy for those who truly desire to do this. Notice he says, you're going to have compassion on your servants. He knows our weakness. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses, again, knows God is still the home of every sinful, weak, passing man and woman through this world. And he asks, because our time is short, for quick mercies. Right? Short amount of time gives us good leverage to ask for quick mercies. I like that, early mercies. There's some things you don't mind being late for. You don't want mercy to show up in your life too late. You want it early. And God promises their early mercies there for those who would ask. And if there's one person, notice again in 15, he says, you can make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years which you have seen evil. If there's one person who understood that in history, God could faithfully proportion joy to sorrow and difficulty, it was Moses. What incredible difficulties in his life and what incredible joys that he could walk through life and in the time that he had, he could recognize God's mercy and compassion and joy, even in the face of seeing great evil in the world. Because we do see that too, don't we? Some of us more than others, some of us want to hide our eyes from the reality of the evil in the world. But what he says is that God can meet us there. And these things are important because for some of us, redeeming time is difficult. Uh, there, in all of our lives, will come places where redeeming time is difficult. Whether it's a confusing issue or a temptation issue or a physical issue, whether it's the reality of life and death. There, there will come a time for all of us where redeeming our time being wise with it is difficult. That's why these incredible promises of God's mercy we need, right? You just go through the list. We're not left alone with the size of sin in this life. We find our Lord. We find compassion. We find satisfaction in God's mercy. We find rejoicing and gladness in the days he gives us, even though evil is in front of our lives. There are incredible promises here. And if you find yourself as a person who says, Lord, man, how do I do this? I need your help. Great. This is a prayer he wants you to pray. And it's a prayer he wants to answer in your life. 16 and 17 then, here's why. He says, let the work, your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. No doubt he's thinking of that second generation that would need to enter into the promised land. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He prays in his final prayer here that God's servants will have God's favor in the process of their daily life. Notice he says the work of our hands a couple times there. That's a phrase used in Deuteronomy a number of times. And it just relates to the normal life experiences that you and I have. 
the common things that we do on a regular basis. And the reason that's important is for most of us, our, our redemption of our time in a wise way isn't going to look too different than the world that we live in. It's going to look like a lot of normal things. It's not going to look like a parting of the Red Sea very often. It's going to look like regular life. Not always big things, but little things. And what happens is we learn to be faithful through the course of our normal time. We learn to give back to God the time that he gives to us. And in the process of that, there's a real sanctification in a Christian's life. It will be a quick path to holiness to begin to learn to redeem your time because there's not going to be any space for the flesh to breathe. See, it's easy to do like one big thing to go on a missions trip or something and then ignore God the rest of the month or give God a, an hour in the beginning of your day and then give the rest of your day to yourself. But if you begin to literally give God your time, the work of your hands, there's no space there for the enemy to take, to get in and to work. And he refines us and makes us holy. And those little moments might actually be harder for a lot of us than the big things, right? You can eat a big piece of cake and gain weight, or you can turn away from the big piece of cake and eat a lot of little cupcakes through the course of the day. <laughs> and it still sets you back, right? And, you know, that's a cheesy illustration, but we, we do that in our spiritual life. All right, I'm not going to do this. But what happens is the course of our everyday life, the work of our hands is not redeemed for him. Moses is seeing. He's seen this in his own time, and he sees it in our time through the work of the Holy Spirit and his inspiration here that God is working out his work. Notice 16. Let your work appear to your servants. Your glory, your beauty be upon us. He's the one who has to establish it there. God, he knows that God carries out his will through human instruments, Moses. And it's important. It makes our time important because that's what God is looking to do. Now, that work was probably very different than Moses imagined. But it was real and it was happening. Jesus in John 17 prays, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Sometimes we wish Jesus prayed something else. And Lord, I pray that when they get saved, you just take them out of the world and they go to heaven. But he didn't say that about his disciples. He said, I pray that you would lead them here and you'd keep them from the evil one. Because I'm sending them into the world like you sent me into the world. Jesus redeemed his time. He could say at the end of his time, I finished the work that you gave me to do. Glorify your name. He was about his father's business. And you and I have been given the awesome privilege to have our time spent on the only thing that matters here on earth. That's what God is doing. His work. If God gives us 70 years here on earth... 50 of those years are actively used for him. That's 18,250 days. It's weird to put a number to it, right? 18,250 days. How many days wasted? How many faithful? What if we have less than that? If you put the, the graph up, right? What slice of the chart would be sleep or phone usage? 
or Netflix binging. Right? Now, I want to make this clear. I'm not just saying the only thing we can do is read our Bible, pray, and evangelize, although we should all do more of those things. I don't think anybody's like, I evangelize too much. So we should all do more of those things. But the point is we need to be faithful and set apart. We have to be about our Father's business. Our time has to be set to God's ends. And there are a lot of people who they're not overtly sinful with their time. This is how they measure their time. As Am I be doing something that's obviously sinful? But the point is their time is still related to them, not to God. It's not obviously sinful, but it's not sanctified. It's not set to his purposes. And when that happens, then everything has a meaning. You can have industrious sleep. If you give yourself to God's work, you're going to get tired. You need to sleep. If you give yourself to God's work, you're going to need a vacation. Then your vacation has purpose other than just to serve yourself. If you, if you give yourself to God's work, your job, your family, your mothering of your children or your space and your life as a husband for your wife. All of those things now find their purpose. Warren Wearsby says, most of the people you meet day after day are either wasting their lives or merely spending their lives. But God's servants have the privilege of investing their lives in what is eternal. We only have so much time. Only have so much time with the health of your body to break down, the strength of it. There's certain things you could do in your youth. Uh, I was interning at a church at one point in my life with a pastor. It was a wonderful pastor, older guy. And, uh, you know, sometimes we had to carry stuff around or, or lug some stuff. And uh, he would just throw something heavy at me and be like, here, carry this. If you can't carry that, what are you good for? You know, so, you know, your youth. You, you have youth. You have strength. You're going to spend it. And there's going to come a place where you spent the greatest part of your strength. What did you give it to? Your mind, a stroke, a disease. Something can happen, and your mind's gone. When you had it, what did you give it to? Your money, your singleness, you could go through the list. The point is, all of us are in different places. All of us need the wisdom of God to see time in focus in relation to our Father's business and his kingdom, not in relation to ourselves or our own wants or what we just think is fun. We can't find time for God and his purposes. We make it. How our time is spent is our choice. It's your choice. How we choose to spend our time is your life. We don't let the world decide for us how we spend our time. We don't measure our time by looking around and saying what other people in the world do or even what other Christians do. God's plan for Moses wasn't to make him like other people. He had something unique for him. We look to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Certainly, I hope we have more than just time for good intentions in life. Because Some people end up life and that's all they had the lost opportunity to do a lovely thing. They intended, but it never got much further than that. Do you want to be a part of God's work? If you do, he will show you his glory. 
He will crown you with his beauty, and he will establish your life on a firm foundation through the common everyday work of your hands. A godly man or a godly woman that is holy and committed to him is an arrow that shoots very straight in God's hands, and he puts it right where he wants it. It's a powerful weapon for his purposes. And Moses understands that. He's seen it. He saw, he's had it lived out in his own life, and he's seen it in the lives of others. Again, Isaiah would say, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? That all flesh is as grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, for the believer, I think the application here is obvious. You and I are responsible for time and eternity. We ought to pray for Moses' heart of wisdom and for God's quick mercies. Jonathan Edwards said, our whole eternity in relation to time. Our whole eternity depends on it, and we have but a little of time. A.W. Tozer said, we are made for eternity as certainly as we are made for time, and as responsible moral beings, we must deal with both. What we do in time will decide our eternity. Our eternal destiny is decided in time, and the quality, the reward, the abundance of our entrance into the kingdom is also decided in time. And what that means is every single minute has eternal weight. And every single minute is worth redeeming. If you're a person who's here and you feel like, man, I already wasted so much time, what's the point? That's the enemy. When Jesus called the disciples, they were all different ages. And it wasn't worthless for a single one of them to follow him. Wherever he calls you, wherever he finds you, if he ministers to your heart, you need to respond to that. Respond to that. We don't own time. It's all a gift, a precious gift to be invested or wasted. Don't waste time trying to figure out if you want your life to be for Jesus. Stop dilly-dallying around and loitering next to the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life. He's been speaking to you about sin. Some people have been speaking to them about sin for years, and they still haven't done anything about it. Wasting time. God loves you. He'll redeem you. He'll work in your life. And then when he finally does, all he'll say is, why did I waste so much time? I believe the enemy is condemnation. Why did I waste that time? Decide to live for Jesus now, to sanctify your life now, your purposes, your home, your life, your job. It is worth it every single minute. We have such a short time to get ready for such a long time. For the unbeliever, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or where you would go if you died today, you would step into heaven or hell. So Jesus says very clearly, Jesus talks about heaven and hell, and he speaks very clearly of both. Jesus believed in both. Jesus taught us about both. And time would be the most precious commodity in hell. A minute. A minute. 
Paul stood before a king once, a king named Felix, and it says he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now, and when I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. We don't know what happened with Felix. We know there was a time in his life where he was convicted about righteousness, about judgment, about the life to come. And what he did in that time was he pushed it off. He wasted his opportunity. The Bible says today is the acceptable day of salvation. If you're here today and Jesus is speaking to you, it's because he loves you. He wants to redeem you, your life here, and your eternity. He died for you to pay for your sins and to bring you into a relationship with himself. Give your life to him today. Let's stand. We're going to pray. I encourage you again, respond to whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, particularly. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and Lord, we immediately and quickly confess our lack of wisdom. Lord, I personally thank you for this prayer, Lord, this verse that we can echo, that you would teach us to number our days, to apply our hearts to wisdom. We need that from you. And we believe that you are compassionate, that you have quick mercy, and that you're our dwelling place from generation to generation. And we find ourselves here in you, and we thank you for that, Lord. We do want to be used for your purposes. We pray your beauty would be on our lives. In this sinful and wicked world, Lord, we pray it could be seen that you've established the work of our hands. And Lord, we do pray for anybody that's here today that you're speaking to their hearts and they wouldn't turn away from you. They would give their life and their eternity to you. They would come to you for forgiveness. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoyed the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.